I'm titling this morning's message, The King's Relatives. We're going to pick up where we left off. We read verses 46 through 50 last week, but didn't get a chance to actually cover the text. Matthew chapter 12, in verse 46 we read, While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You'll remember that the chapter began with misunderstanding and opposition towards Jesus. Jesus has received opposition over the issue of the Sabbath in verses 1 through 21, satanic powers in verses 22 through 37, signs in verses 38 through 45, and now certain relatives in verses 46 through 50. We're not told what motivates the king's relatives for this special audience. We do know that families often require special considerations and immediate attention in verse 46. But Jesus is going to use this time as an illustration and as a teaching moment. In the chapter, Jesus is seen in part, remember, fulfilling the prophecies from Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 through 4, where the Messiah was going to proclaim justice to the nations in verse 18 and again in verse 21. The Messiah isn't going to be quarrelsome or rebellious in verse 19. The Messiah is going to treat the weak and the hopeless with gentleness with understanding in verse 20. So why then does Jesus not give his family the special considerations and immediate attention that they seem to need right at the moment? I don't think that Jesus is trying to be dismissive of his family. Rather, Jesus is pointing to the priority and the supremacy of spiritual relationships in the will of God. That might come as a shock and a surprise to some of you. Even the natural family of Jesus will need Jesus to be their savior. And so in verse 46, we begin with relationship in the natural. Look what it says, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold his mother, and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. I want you to note something. While he's still talking to the multitudes, a messenger, verse 47, interrupts his sermon. But even in the interruption, Jesus is going to control the situation and use it as a teaching moment. Jesus is going to give us a lesson. God is at work. 
building a family, a spiritual family. How is that spiritual family formed? Well, the formation is linked to doing the Father's will in verse 50. What is the one great trait that characterizes the family of God? There are families here at our church. You can look at moms and dads and their children. And as you look at their children, you might look and you might say, hey, look, she has her mother's hair and her father's eyes. There are traits. There are familial traits that follow in our family. What are the supernatural familial traits of the spiritual family of God? And it is devotion to the will of God. And we should note something else. His family apparently thinks their concerns far outweigh the message of Jesus. The New Testament teaches that Mary had other children with her husband Joseph. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 66, and Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, if you grew up in a religious tradition similar to my own, that might come as a shock to you. The passage doesn't seem to support the Roman Catholic view that Mary remained a perpetual virgin after giving birth to Jesus. The text strongly supports the view that these are blood brothers and sisters. The view is further strengthened by other scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me cite just one in the Old Testament. In Psalm 69, verses 8 and 9, most Bible scholars believe this is a messianic prophecy that makes reference to Jesus, and it's actually used that way, cited by the apostles in the New Testament. In Psalm 69, 8, it says, I have become a stranger to my brothers, which is the Messiah's way of saying, I've become a stranger to national Israel, my brothers who are ethnically Jewish and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. There's further evidence in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 and 32, John chapter 7, verses 3 and 5, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. The evidence just continues to mount the Roman Catholic argument that these are references to siblings from a previous marriage or they are cousins finds no support in the New Testament. Or in early church tradition. If Joseph had children from a prior marriage, Joseph's oldest son would have been heir to David's throne and not Jesus. In verse 47 it says, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Again, there seems to be good evidence from the New Testament that the immediate family didn't comprehend fully or support completely Jesus in his early ministry. 
Perhaps the most overwhelming evidence comes from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. John chapter 7 takes place during the Feast of the Tabernacles. His half-brothers suggest, hey, look, if you really want to have a following, go to the feast. Do something spectacular. Do something that's going to be irrefutable and undeniable. His own family knew that many of the followers of Jesus had already left him in John chapter 6, verse 66. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we read, but when his own people heard, his own people are his immediate family, when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, typically, you can say that facetiously, you can say it superficially, But I'm going to suggest to you that all the evidence in the text seems to indicate that they really believe that something is wrong with Jesus. And it makes perfect sense. Because if you say you are the son of God and God is your father and it's not true, chances are you've stripped some threads. The family diagnosis, Jesus has some form of mental or emotional distress or mental illness. It would appear that the family members are upset and they're disturbed by his claims. I'm going to go a little bit further and suggest they're terrified by the threats of the religious leaders. That the dissemination has already begun to take place. That the religious leaders want Jesus dead. And whatever else they believe about their family and whatever else they believe about Jesus, they don't want him dead. They care about him. Is it possible the family has come to quietly take Jesus away? We have every reason to believe, again, that his family cared for him. They're concerned about him. But they don't really believe him. We might think, well, how is that possible? How is it possible to grow up with Jesus and not recognize his sinless nature? His own mother Mary and his siblings must have known about the miracles. Clearly Mary knows about the virgin birth. She knows about the wedding feast of changing the water into wine. Those family members closest to him are able to observe him and test him. But all the evidence seems to be that they don't believe him. And I want to draw your attention to two words that I think are very important in our text. In verse 46 and in verse 47, the phrase, his relatives stood outside in verse 46. And were standing outside in verse 47. Why do you suppose those words are so important? Again, because they are on the outside. The family of Jesus had every opportunity to support Jesus, follow Jesus, learn from Jesus. But they're not with him. And what might the reason be? The reasons might range anywhere from unbelief, contempt, neglect, 
It could be stuff like, hey, we have better things to do. Hey, guess what? There's a real world out there. I have a job. I have things that I have to do, people I have to meet, th obligations that I have to respond to. And, and the whole point becomes we sometimes neglect or take for granted our family, and we might sometimes neglect or take for granted our spiritual family, in the natural, we might think that our loved one will always be with us, will always have access to our parents, will always have access to our spouse, will always have access to, to our friends, but it's not true. The week before my father died, the week before my mother died, the week before my brother died, I had no idea that they were going to die. If I had some idea that they were going to die, I could have called them and spent some time with them. Disruptions and distractions in ministry can come from family and they can come from friends. Does the Bible offer this passage as a support to neglect our family or ignore our family or dis disregard our family and its duties. I don't think that that's the point. The Bible does teach that if we neglect or ignore the responsibilities of support, the Bible says that we're worse than infidels. I think that the larger question we need to ask ourselves is something far greater, far more important. It's a simple question to ask and it's a painfully hard question to answer. And that is, is my home a Christ-centered home? Or is it a child-centered home? Or even a father-centered home? Or a wife-centered home? Is my home a Christ-centered home? And look what it says in verse 48. But he answered and said, to the one who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? Imagine if the guy said, dude, your mom's the Virgin Mary. She's the, we know she's the Virgin Mary. She's the one glowing on the outside with the halo who floats in midair. That's not what he says. And don't think this even for a moment to be disrespectful because that's not the point of the passage. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. What, what are we to think about that statement? We should pause for a moment and go, Jesus is making this statement and he's making it in a context of opposition for what reason? Because we're left with the impression that special privilege or special access by either his mother or his brothers aren't a part of what's happening. Did Mary have special privileges or accesses to the Savior by virtue of this, the fact that she says, look, I'm your mother? I think that the answer is no. Do you know why? Not just here, but in Luke chapter 11, verse 27. 
For those of you who are unfamiliar with the New Testament, you might want to turn there because in Luke chapter 11, verse 27, it says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Is Jesus being disrespectful to his mother? No. Is he being disrespectful to Roman Catholicism? I think that the Lord Jesus, and listen to me carefully, the Lord Jesus does not deny that Mary is his mother. He does not deny that she is blessed. Rather, Jesus is saying it's more important to hear the word of God and keep the word of God. William MacDonald rightly says, quote, in other words, even the Virgin Mary was more blessed in believing on Christ and following him that she was in being his mother. Natural relationship is not as important as spiritual. This should be sufficient to silence those who would make Mary an object of adoration, unquote. I think he's right. In a sense, the family of Jesus include his immediate family. But I'm going to suggest to you that the text is pushing us even further. That he's making reference in part to his Jewish heritage. In other words, you hear me often say, there's two kinds of people in the world. You all know the answer. There are Italian people. What's the rest of the? And those that wish they were. There's Italian people and people who wish they were. Is Jesus boiling reality down? There are Jewish people and people who wish they were. I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly the opposite of what's happening. The emphasis from this period forward isn't going to be Jew versus Gentile or Jesus' immediate family versus some other family. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about natural relations. It's about a supernatural relationship that has now taken place by the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me say this with all care and consideration. Jesus isn't trying to undermine the family. He's not even trying to undermine the importance of the family. But Jesus is making it clear that being a follower of Jesus, he stretches out his hand, he extends it towards the disciples, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Supernatural spiritual relations supersede DNA and family commitment. The Lord Jesus refuses to allow opposition, even from his own family. When it comes to his call, when it comes to his ministry, when it comes 
from the desire on the part of his own family to abandon his mission and abandon the plan of God and the purposes of God for which he's come to the earth. I don't think Jesus is disavowing his family, but I think that Jesus must have been hurt, disappointed, when his family refused his message and refused his miracles. It's painful if you're a father or a mother or a grandfather and a grandmother and you raise children in a God-honoring, Christ-honoring home. You teach your children to love and respect and appreciate the Bible. You teach them to love and respect Jesus. You teach them the principles that are found in the Bible only to discover that your children aren't going to honor God. They're not going to obey God. They're choosing to go in a different direction, and it fills the heart with disappointment. On Calvary's cross, Jesus will entrust his mother's care to the apostle John on, in John chapter 19, verse 27. He is not going to abandon his family and he physically is going to appear to his brothers in post-resurrection appearances. Some people might think, well, that's not fair. Jesus shows up and says, look, I know we grew up together, but you know, I'm the Lord of the universe and I just came back from the dead and just thought I'd give you a heads up that everything I said was true about the problem of sin and the necessity of salvation. The Lord Jesus reminds us that we have a supernatural extended family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you may have grown up again in a tradition or in circumstances where that sort of gives you a sense of, of, of discomfort. Especially if a Christian says to you, brother, you're my brother, you're my sister. And you go, you're not my brother. You're not my sister. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that in the realm of the supernatural, when you become born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are born from on high. God, by the very power of the Holy Spirit, comes into your heart and gives you a new nature and new friendships and relationships based on the reality of what Jesus has done. We have God as our father and Jesus is our royal elder brother and we are brothers and sisters. And so he talks about relationship, but it's relationship in the will of the Father. Look what it says in verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Who belongs in Jesus' forever family? Those who've been adopted by God through the Holy Spirit. We're adopted into God's family. When we do the will of God, in what sense? Again, John MacArthur rightfully says, quote, doing the will of God is the evidence of salvation by grace, not salvation by works, unquote. 
It's exactly right. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, the phrase is repeated. The faith that simply has something to say, but has nothing to do, is really a form of barren, empty belief. The person who says, I'm a Christian, Why do you say that? Well, I'm not a Buddhist, and I'm not a Muslim, and I'm not an atheist and an agnostic. Then why does everything about your life betray that? Salvation is a narrow way, by grace alone, through faith alone. But according to the New Testament, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, but it never remains alone. The grace and the faith that causes the change in the heart will cause evidence of a changed life. And this is the exact point that the brother of Jesus, James, will make in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And and again in chapter 2, verse 26. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the religious leaders ask Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? John 6, 28. And then in verse 29, it says, Then Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe him whom he sent. According to Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, this is what God wants. He wants you to believe that the Father has sent the Son. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful and saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, even at the end of his incomparable ministry and amazing successes. When Paul writes these words, he's not at the beginning of his ministry or even at the middle of his ministry. He's at the very, very end of his ministry. And even then he refers to himself as a sinner, the chief of sinners. But he says, this is the faithful saying that's worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In John 6, 39, Jesus speaks to the religious leaders again and says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I shall lose almost everything. No, most, no. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. In John 6, 39 and 40, Jesus claims the ability to bring people back to life. And then it says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. The will of the Father is to believe on the reality of the Son. And the point of the passage seems to be that if we follow Jesus in conflict, in opposition, in difficulty, 
that we still should understand and obey Jesus in the will of God. Remember, that's what he's experienced. Opposition. Difficulty. And so what is the will of God? Clearly, it's to believe in Jesus and receive Jesus and walk with Jesus when he's pointing to his disciples. In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 30 through 35, in summary, he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his brother and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he can't be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? Is he asking you to hate your family? Of course not. How else would you explain one of the Ten Commandments when it says, honor your mother and your father? How can you honor them and hate them? He's not asking you to hate them. He's asking you to compare your affection and obligation to God in relationship with your family so that the obligation and love and affection that you have towards the Lord and towards the family of God, that your own affections seem like hatred in comparison. The Bible says do good to everyone but first of all, to those who are in the family of faith. Salvation is free. But discipleship costs everything. And the good news, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Bernard Ettinger wrote, quote, inside the will of God there is no failure. Outside the will of God, there is no success. If you say, I want to be happy, I just want to be happy, I just want to be happy, you'll never find happiness outside the will of God. You might look for it in a relationship or in money or in some sort of opportunity but God has made it clear that true contentment, true fulfillment, true joy is going to be found in Christ. We also cannot call our home or our family a Christ-centered home or a Christ-centered family if we refuse to ask ourselves the serious question. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? What is God's will as I conduct myself in this thing that is called my family? So what about your home? Is it a Christ-centered home? Is it a child-centered home? Is it a self-centered home? If we refuse to ask that serious question, then the chances are we're going to be in trouble. You know, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 14, we're told one of the most compelling things in one of the most compelling passages in all of the Bible about the family. In Genesis 2.14, it says, For this cause, marriage, he's talking about, For this cause, marriage, shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. 
There are many passages in the Bible that deal with family dynamics, but none more important than this verse. Why? Because the passage is repeated at least three more times in the biblical record. In what sense? The new home is established to glorify God. Therefore, a man will leave his mother and father, cleave to the woman. The two shall become one. When I'm doing marriages, I'll typically say, and now you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out which one. Are we going to be me, him, or are we going to be her? But that's not what the passage is saying. The passage isn't inviting wives to be their husband or their husband to be their wife or in, in attitude and action. What the passage is inviting is both husband and wife to submit to the lordship of God according to the glory of God. The new home is established to honor and glorify God. The husband and wife become a family before any children arrive on the scene. You aren't a family when the kid shows up. You're a family before they show up. And so for the person who thinks, well, we're, we're not really a family, you couldn't be more wrong. Moms and dads derive their authority from God, and the family unit isn't a democracy. It's a theocracy with Jesus as the head over the family unit and the father as the head of the household and the mother as the, as the helper. Children are welcome in the family, but they're not welcome to usur usurp parental authority. And they're not welcome to usurp the authority of God. According to the scripture, the relationship between husband and wife is permanent and unbroken, according to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. The Christian home's priority is always, first and foremost, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. The God-centered home, the Christ-centered home is the one where father and mother and everyone is committed to serving God and pleasing God. Fathers and mothers joyfully serve each other and teach their children to do the same. Children obey parents the first time. This is where most of you should say, Amen! I can't believe I couldn't get an amen out of that. In the God-centered home, you learn that you don't always get your way. That God has entrusted parents with the care and custody of children. And that it's important that we give them instructions according to the glory of God. And what the Bible has to say in the word of God, God-centered and Christ-centered homes regularly ask the question, What's God's will for our family? What does God want for our family? You know, I understand that there are chapters in our life where we can't always do what we would want. My poor wife, she knew that in the ministry that we've been called to, that every single Sunday was going to be set aside for church. 
Does that mean that we discouraged our children from being involved in sports or having activities on the weekend? No. There are certain things that happen and there are certain activities that happen. But the truth is our family has always been a family where guess what? Friendship, fellowship, and the priority of fellowship has always been a part of our life. C.S. Lewis thought long and hard over this issue of God's will, and he wrote, quote, There are two kinds of people, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, All right, have it your way, unquote. And sometimes a wife will say to a husband or a husband will say to a wife or parents will say to the children, please honor the Lord in this situation. And they'll say, no, I'm not going to honor God. What do you do? Well, I beat the stuffing out of them. No, that's, that's not the biblical answer. The biblical answer is, each and every one of us will be faced with some very hard decisions about whether we're going to honor God and obey God. Human families are, by and large, based on blood, but not always. People come into our lives, and they're a part of our lives. But spiritual families are always based on blood. The blood of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus. The service of Jesus, the promise of Jesus. In human families, our bonds are often tied to the presence and faithfulness of fathers and mothers. But in our spiritual family, it's tied to the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Christ. Jesus wants our human families to be a part of our forever family. And that's why. That's why we place such an important emphasis on telling our children about Jesus, about preparing them to know and love and serve Jesus. Thomas Aquinas famously said, a man's heart is right when he wills what God wills. It was the Dutch patriot Cory ten Boom who would say often, the center of God's will is our only safety. The only place where you can be completely safe is right smack dab in the middle of God's will. And the science of the saints consists in finding God's will and in doing God's will. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, For this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's God's will that you be saved. It's God's will that husbands are saved and wives are saved. It's God's will that children are saved, that they come into a right relationship with God. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 17 and 18, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine and wherein is dissipation, but you should be filled with the Spirit. It's God's will that you be saved. It's God's will that you be Spirit-filled. And first 
Thessalonians 4.3, it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It's God's will that you be saved. It's God's will that you be filled with the Spirit. It's God's will that you walk in purity, sobriety. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, in everything give thanks This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Gratitude, thankfulness is a part of your life. This is the will of God. It's the will of God that you be saved. It's the will of God that you be spirit-filled. It's the will of God that you be pure. It's the will of God that you be thankful. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, obey those who rule over you. Be submissive for they watch out over your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. This is the writer of Hebrews way of saying when your pastor asks you to do something that's according to the will of God in the Bible, do it so that he wouldn't be filled with grief. It's God's will that we be submissive. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submissive hearts, thankful hearts, pure hearts, spirit-filled hearts, cleansed and made new hearts, all of those are a part of God's will. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, it says, For it is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. And in 1 Peter 4, 19, it says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. As shocking, surprising, difficult as it might be to accept. Sometimes it's God's will for you to go without and not have and to suffer. Here are six clear declarations of the will of God for our lives. God wants us to be saved. Are you? Then there's absolutely no way that you could have a Christ-centered home or a God-centered home. Are you walking in the, in the spirit, submitted to the spirit, being informed, cultivating the character of Christ? Are you spirit-filled? Are you pure? Are you thankful? Are you submissive? Are you ready to suffer? You should seek God's wisdom in trying to apply these things to your life. As you make the next important decision. What's God's will for your life? For you to be saved, spirit filled. It's God's will for you to be pure and thankful and submissive and ready, 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 ready to not have. To do without. You know, my life may not be going exactly like I planned. But it's going exactly like God planned. It's going exactly 
for what God wanted. And sometimes the Lord comes into our lives and he goes, I'm going to give you exceeding abundant above all that you could ask or think. And then I'm going to take some stuff away from you that you don't really need. And so, you can see why I saved this for today. By the way, beginning in verse 13, we're going to be talking about the mysteries of the kingdom. We're going to embark on a series of parables that are going to be mind-blowing. But for now, ask yourself this question. Is my life a Christ-centered life? Is my home a Christ-centered home? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want so much to honor you, obey you, submit to you. Lord, I know that there's not a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa who doesn't want what's best for husbands and wives and children and grandchildren. Lord, as we present the claims of Christ, as we invite people to know Jesus and love Jesus and not to resist or oppose Jesus, we know that there are going to be times, maybe chapters, where people go, I just simply don't believe that it's true. Lord, I pray that with patience and care that we would remind ourselves of our own stubborn, rebellious hearts and how in grace and mercy you showed up, broke our heart, and gave us the opportunity to know you and love you and serve you. And so, Lord, again, I pray for each and every husband and wife, each and every family, that they would make those decisions. Will our family be a Christ-centered home? Doing the will of God. Fulfilling the plan of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.